Jesse. I'm the student pastor here, which means, by definition, I'm not the lead pastor. You guys be praying for Pat, our lead pastor. He's actually speaking at a D-Now out in Kingwood area. I know the church is from Kingwood, but I don't really remember where his D-Now was. Their speaker got sick, and so they called Pat and said, hey, can you uh, come and, and fill in? And so he's, he's doing that probably as we speak right now, standing in front of a group of, of teenagers, which is ironic because I spend most of my time standing in front of teenagers, and now we've switched roles, and so now he knows what it feels like. Um, he asked me, he said, hey, Jesse, can you uh, take care of this message about, you know, how we got our Bible? Like, help us pick a Bible. And so I don't know about you, but I have a favorite Bible. I've had, I've had Bibles that are older than my favorite, and I've had Bibles that are newer because my eyesight is getting worse, and so my letters are getting bigger. But I still go back to my favorite Bible. This is my favorite Bible. It's small. Um, I specifically picked it because it fits in my back pocket, which I no longer carry in my back pocket because of a thing called cell phones. But at the time, uh, you, the only way you could have your Bible is if you had a physical, like some kind of paper physical Bible. And so I picked this Bible, and um, it, I feel like I'm amongst family. I can confess things from the stage, and you guys won't go tell anybody to embarrass me, I'm sure. Um, but one of the very first things I did when I got this Bible, I mean, it still had that new car smell on it, is I got a roll of duct tape, and I started kind of wrapping it around the sides, and I kind of I made this. And in my head, as uh, I was probably 19, 20 years old, uh, I really thought people would see my Bible and think, my gosh, that must be the most spiritual man who ever walked. He had to duct tape his Bible. I literally duct taped it just to impress all of you at one point. And, uh, and what's funny about that is, is uh, I think in the grand scheme of it all, no one's ever looked at my Bible and be like, I trust that guy and everything he says. He sure is holy. Nobody's ever cared, okay? Uh, although now it's getting so old that I'm kind of glad the duct tape is on there. It's, I think it's the only thing holding some of this together. When you, when you carry it around in your back pocket for a while, it just kind of gets tore up. Um, this Bible's been on a few trips with me. I've, I've taken this on every uh, mission trip I've ever been to. Every camp I've been to as an adult, I had this Bible with me. I bought it before my first youth group going to youth camp, and it already had the duct tape on it. And uh, within five minutes of landing at camp, my Bible goes missing. This Bible goes missing. And it's day one. It's a five-day camp. And I spent five days going back and forth to Lost and Found looking for my favorite duct tape Bible, and it never showed up. And then I load all the kids on the bus, and we're about to leave, and we're about to go back to church. And I go check one last time, and some punk kid turned in my Bible on the very last day. That sucker stole my Bible on day one, used it for five days of camp, and then returned it back to its owner. I hope he uh, – I didn't see any notes. I don't know if he – if he uh, wrote in it, but maybe, maybe he or she, I assume it's a guy. Guys are always the ones who do that. Uh, I assume he's the one who used it. One of the reasons I love this Bible, and if you have a favorite Bible, if you've been a believer for a long time, you've hung on to it for a while, one of the reasons I love my Bible is that there are times in my head where a passage of Scripture will pop in, and I can't quite get the wording right, but it's like I just, I need to look it up, and I can remember, it's like, okay, it's on the right side in that top column where I remember, oh, I, I, I highlighted that one this color this time when I was sitting in that room, and I can flip back, and sometimes I'll just be reading through this thing, which with squinted eyes, and I'm like this far away from it now, but I'll still, I'll still using I'll be reading through this thing and uh, I'll see a note written in the margin and it's a handwriting I don't even use anymore like I've changed it's it's been there so long I've changed my handwriting since that time and I remember what the Lord was working on in that moment as as I was getting there why that note was written 
Maybe I wouldn't have written that note today, but it reminds me of the journey that I've been on. There's something powerful about having your own physical Bible, one that you love, one that you can understand, one that's been with you through, you know, this and that and punk kids stealing it. Um, I left this other Bible. This is the replacement I got for it. I can't bring myself to read it all the time, but it's big enough that I can read. Uh, I brought this one with me, along with this one. I brought this one with me to Canada, and then I left it in Canada. And it stayed in Canada for a whole year of no one using it, and then it ends up getting shipped back to me. This one's been on a journey, too. I basically have the flat Stanleys of the Bible world. They, they just travel around with me. Um, these two Bibles are the exact same translation, word for word. There, there's no difference. All the punctuations are in the exact same spots. But my notes and my thumb has gone through this one so many more times that it feels natural to me. It's almost like, a, uh, like me speaking a language. I, I get into it, and, and this is the one that I love. What I hope to do today is answer some very common questions about the Bible, um, and maybe we all get to a place where we select maybe for the first time our very first favorite Bible that we, we begin to get into. I want to I answer a few of the kind of, you know, sometimes you get out there, and especially if you get away from the church, there's always that one guy, he's usually rubbing his chin like this, he's like, well, you know, you can't trust anything, <laughs> and then he kind of chuckles, and then he gives you a reason why. That guy's an idiot, and I'll tell you why in about question four or five, okay? So, um, um, I hope you brought your thinking caps with you. Uh, let's all get it on now. You all brought it, right? You have yours? Yeah? Okay. Let's talk about what the Bible is. <laughs> and that's not going to work. Okay. What is the Bible? First question, one of the things that the church has gotten really, really good at doing is taking basic words and making them sound a lot more spiritual than what they are. Just is, okay? I don't know why we do that, but we love doing that. And so a couple of things, if, if you look on your Bible, it probably says Holy Bible somewhere on there. Look on the front cover. Do you see the words Holy and Bible on your book of the Scripture? Well, let's talk about what those words mean. The, the first word, Holy, we can put up right here. Holy just means set apart. All it means is like, okay, you have some things that are uh, basic or vulgar would be the opposite of holy. These are things that everybody uses. You have, you have your, your common pen, like everybody uses that pen in the seat in front of you. But if you had your very most favorite pen, and you only use that one pen to write down the most special notes ever, you would say, I'm setting that pen apart. And the word for that is holy. That's what the word means. The word Bible just means book. That's all it means, okay? So, like, sometimes we think, well, this is, this is the Bible. Well, all you're saying, like, the word comes from the Latin, means book. All you're saying is, this is my book that I've set apart for other things. This book is different than other books. This book is, is something that I cherish. I don't treat it the same as I treat my other books, but all I'm saying is the words set apart and book. This is actually not just one book, though. If, you, if you've been around the Bible long enough, you, you might hear someone say, turn to the book of... Romans, or turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. It actually isn't just one book that one guy sat down to write. It's actually 66 different books that people have collected and put into one handy binding. You're carrying with you, if you have your Bible uh, physically with you, or if you have your phone with a, all the Bible, you're carrying basically a library of books, 66 books that, that we've collected and we say are inspired, and there's, there's information here that teaches us about the character and nature of God and, and who, who he says we are and, and what we can know about him. These 66 books are broken into two main sections. Um, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the Old Testament has 39 books, and the New Testament has 27 books. Okay, so you track with me. Some of you are like, I know, like, I'm, I'm saying some things, and you're like, Jesse, come on, like, let's get to the point. 
do you know how many times uh, me or even Pat, Pat and I have had this conversation, we'll get off stage after teaching, and we're, someone's like, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know that book was there. What is a chapter, Jesse? Like, what, what, is a, what is a New Testament? Why do we have two different testaments? Well, that's another word that uh, the church has tried to complicate. Testament just means promise, just means covenant, just means way of looking at things. And so what they've done with compiling these 66 books together is that they're saying, they're saying the Old Testament is the old covenant, the old promise, and the New Testament is a new promise by which we as Christians, we live our lives by. The old promise was one day a Savior will come. Let me tell you everything you need to know about a Savior. Here's the reason you need a Savior. Here's the, the ways you tried to save yourself. Go read the book of Judges, and everybody's trying to save themselves, and nobody gets it right. Uh, here's, here's me, God. Here's God trying to correct us. And we go read the prophets in the Old Testament, and it's about like the prophets saying, hey, guys, we really need to kind of turn back to God. And everybody's like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And then the old promise comes to an end because the old promise was one day a Savior will come. And then in pops Jesus in the New Covenant, the New Testament unfolds. And we live today, you and I, uh, as, as modern-day believers, we live under this New Testament that, that says that we have grace with our Lord. We sing songs that we sang earlier that say, I come to you broken to be mended because the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am willing to mend you. It's not about you taking your sacrifice of goats Old Testament, it's about me being the sacrifice and paying for your sins. So the Testaments, the Old Testament is just the old promise. The New Testament is the new promise. If you uh, come from a Catholic background, some of our Catholic brothers and sisters, they have a third section. Remember, we, we have two in our, in our Bibles, the Bibles that are with you most likely, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Catholics have what we call the Apocrypha, which is just a fancy word, means hidden. Um, they sometimes call it the Deuterocanonical Writings. <laughs> Man, that fell out of my mouth just right. I pronounced it right. Deuterocanonical writings. And all that is is just a section of writings that was written uh, at, at a period of time that um, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church are just kind of, they dispute whether or not that is a holy book inspired by God. Every Protestant will most likely say you could read the Apocrypha and get some really interesting history out of it. For instance, First and Second Maccabees, dude, that is like, this dude was called the hammer. All right. There was a man in the in the apocrypha, Second Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus. He's called the hammer, like you know, like our lawyers are called today. Uh, he's called the hammer because like he just would stand up to anybody. He's like, no, listen, listen, we're going to trust God, we're going to love God, and and he was he was the hammer. He, in fact, he was so famous, Judas Maccabeus, that all the moms who wanted a strong manly name for their son would name their sons Judas. Until a little after the time of Jesus, there's one guy who ruined that for the rest of the Judases in the world. And they quit naming their kid Judas after Judas Iscariot. Um, but it's just interesting history. Is it inspired by God? Um, I, I, I would argue probably not. But we can have a discussion about that later, Apocrypha. The entire Bible, all 66 books, was written by about 40 different authors. 40 different authors wrote what we call our Bible. And they wrote all of their writings from beginning to end. It took about 1,500 years to get all of the books that we have now. Some of them written 1,500 B.C., some of them written as recently as 70 A.D. And what's powerful about that is you'll have people, you'll have people like uh, Stephen Hawking or somebody like that, they'll try to, to, to disparage the book. Oh, it's just, it's just someone writing these things down to try to confuse you and make you think these things. Yeah, but except this one thing. 
1,500 years of people writing, 40 different people, they're all telling us the same story. They're all saying the same thing. We were created by a God who loves us from the very, very beginning, and yet something is broken in our nature. And when I look in myself, I see there is something broken in my nature. And Scripture says, let me tell you what is broken in your nature. And then let me tell you what the solution is that. Well, Jesse has tried every solution I can think of to fix myself, but the Bible says there's one solution outside myself, and it's in the name Jesus that I can find hope. And so what we celebrate, you and I, as modern-day believers, is 2,000 years of people trusting the Word of God to have truth in it, and 2,000 years of communities of people being completely transformed by hope instead of fear, by, by freedom instead of guilt. And it's because these 40 authors are all saying the same story over their 1,500 years. We believe that the Word of God is inspired and written and is influential for our lives. So what is the Bible? It's all of those things. Now you can go impress some of your friends with the word deuterocanonical writings. You throw that down in Scrabble in one play, you have won the entire game. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. All right, so let's talk about Bible translations for a second. Um, you'll hear the phrase translation a lot. Uh, this, is, this is helpful for four of you. And so for the four of you, let's hike up our nerd glasses. <laughs> yes, and then the rest of us hang tight because we're going to get to some, some meaty stuff here in a second. Um, this may be shocking, but uh, the original Bible wasn't written in King James English. It was actually written in three different languages. Um, the languages are Hebrew, Aramaic, in Greek. I want to give you some examples of what those are. I'm not going to read these and try to impress anyone, but we'll look at Hebrew. This is what Hebrew looks like in the original. This is Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, and so you guys know that. If I started saying it, you'd say, in the beginning was the word, and they would say, and they would go through. Um, that was perfect Hebrew. You, you take... You guys get that recording off the podcast and go ask a Jewish friend, and they're like, that bro knows some Hebrew. Um, <laughs> Uh, Hebrew is written from right to left. In the original language, there were no vowels. Every letter was a consonant. If you look on uh, the Hebrew words right there, um, the little dots in the middle and underneath, and there's like little squiggles. There's like a little T in that second word right there. Um, those are all the vowel sounds. Uh, the original language, they didn't have a need to write vowels because, you know, if you look at old-time English, there are also no vowels. Uh, people just would know how to read it. It was only the smartest of the smart people who read it anyway. You didn't have to have every third grader know how to read it. You would be in your 20s or 30s before you learned to read to begin with. And so they would write that. And then as the languages got older and older and less and less people could speak them, it would be like me handing you uh, Canterbury Tales or something and be like, read this. You'd be like, this is gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. It's actually written in English. It's just a version of English that's so far removed, we don't know. And the same was true in Hebrew. As they got farther and farther removed from the original language, they started adding those vowel marks so that people would know when to breathe and when to, when to like go, ha, and then like, like hike it up. One of the things that I think is also interesting right here is a lot of people will just read squiggly lines and they immediately, a prejudice will set in. They're like, oh, that's not American. That's not, that's not what we believe. We, we're Christians. Well, by golly, it was actually written in the squiggly lines. It was written this way. And so we need to, we need to recognize that our Old Testament is a very, very old book in, in parts well over 3,000 years old written in Hebrew. So that's Hebrew. Uh, let's look at Aramaic for a second. 
Aramaic looks, uh, they use the same character system with a few differences as Hebrew, so it looks exactly like Hebrew, but it follows almost none of the rules. And so it kind of sounds like Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. Uh, some of the books of the Bible that would have been written in uh, Aramaic are parts of Daniel and Ezra, it's the later parts of the Old Testament. Also, you'll see a lot of times in the New Testament, Jesus will speak Aramaic. In fact, you've heard some words that are in Aramaic that uh, maybe you didn't realize were Aramaic. When Jesus calls uh, God Abba, Abba Father, that's an Aramaic word. It's just the, the word that a child will use when they're talking to their dad. It's not the word you would use like, oh, Heavenly Father. It's Daddy, please help, Abba. You imagine like a little baby, Abba, Abba, crying, Daddy, Daddy. Uh, another word you might have heard, uh, we can go to the next slide. Another word you might have heard uh, that's also Aramaic is Maranatha, and that means Lord come. And so the, the word would be this, is that as the, as the Hebrew Aramaic speaking people uh, in the New Testament were looking forward to Jesus coming, and they realized my world is going to fall apart unless Lord Jesus comes and saves us, they yelled out Maranatha. So you've probably heard that. You may have heard that in a song or something. Maranatha means Lord come. And then the third language that you find in the Bible is Greek. The entire New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, an important note to add right here, uh, at the time of its writing, there were two forms of Greek that were available to write in. There was the official legal form, like if you were to go to court, you would write in the most prestigious Greek you could. But if you're just some Joe writing a little note to pass to your friend, you wrote in a different form of Greek called common Greek, Koine Greek. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. It was written in the common form. It was never meant to be like some oh high and mighty writing. It was written so that everybody who could read would be able to understand the words that were right there. Now, if I began to pronounce some of these words uh, to impress you and your friends, uh, you would probably recognize a few of them because a lot of English begins to pull out of Greek. And so this is John 3.16. Uh, it's utos, gar, and then uh, I'm going to read that third word. It's agape sin. Agape sin. Does that sound like agape to anybody? Uh, oh, theos, that fourth word, fifth word, theos, means God. And so it's talking about the love of God right there. And so you see that this is written in a different language. And so when you get the Bible in its original languages, how many languages did it have? You have Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, um, we're going to fast forward to, okay, well, why do we have so many different translations? If they were written in those three languages, why do we have so many different translations? One of the slides that I forgot to put on there is that some, some group of people uh, decided to grab all of the writings that were in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek and put it in one language. They chose Greek because that's what they spoke at the time, and they call that book the Septuagint. And then fast forward, you got a guy named Constantine. Constantine's like, hey, man, I need a Bible. And so in 382 uh, A.D., you have a man by the name of Jerome. He translates the entire Bible and the Apocrypha, Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha. He translates it into Latin, and we call that the Latin Vulgate. What's, what you need to hear me say about that, to impress your friends, is that the word Vulgate is where we get the word vulgar from. Vulgar just means common language. It's just he wrote it so that everybody could understand it. He, he translated because people were forgetting Greek. People had long forgotten Hebrew at this point. And he, he's, nobody understands this thing. We need a way to understand this. Let's write it in a vulgar language, a vulgate. Let's make the Latin vulgate. And so 382, what do you think everybody spoke? 
Latin. He just got like $200 in Jeopardy. That's good. And, and they wrote it in a language that everybody could understand. So Jerome writes it in 382, uh, and this becomes the Bible that everybody uses. If you grew up Catholic, uh, and the Catholic church you went to spoke Latin a lot of the times, uh, they were reading out of the Latin Vulgate, most likely. That's where that translation came from. And as far as the Bible is concerned, nobody translates it again for a long, long time. Every now and then, someone would grab a copy of it and translate a little piece of it, but nobody really did much work in that until 1384, and a man named John Wycliffe comes on. John Wycliffe, he grabs the Latin Vulgate, and he starts translating it into English. He gets most of it done, uh, and in 1384, he has a stroke, and he dies. Um, and then some of his buddies come up behind him and finish translating the Bible. Now, here's the problem that's ho- happening right here, is that over the last thousand years, the number of people who spoke Latin went from pretty much everybody to almost nobody. A thousand years have gone by, and no one translated this Bible again into something else. Anybody here ever pick up a Bible, and you're like, uh, you got like two these and a thou and thine, and you're like, I'm done. I can't, I don't even understand what I'm reading anymore. That's pretty much what it would feel like in 1381 before uh, 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 Tyndale uh, Wycliffe, excuse me, Tyndale's next. Wycliffe did this. But during this time, because nobody could understand the Bible, there were a select, a very small portion of people, actually, but a small portion of people that were using that ignorance, the ignorance of the people, the ignorance of the people's ability to read and study for themselves, to say, well, here's what God actually wants you to do. You know what God wants you to do? God says, you pay the church a little bit of money, and we'll just forgive a couple of sins. You pay us a little bit more money, we'll forgive a few more sins. It's called indulgences. It's in the history books right then. And people like John Wycliffe saw that that was heretical, saw that that was wrong, and saw that that was an abuse of power. Anybody in here ever been to a church or know of a church that kind of abused the ignorance of people? I've seen that. It's, 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 it should be an abomination. You should be disgusted when you see that happen. Well, disgusted John Wycliffe, and so he translates the Bible into a language that everybody understands. But those small few people were really, really mad at him for doing that. But he died of a stroke, so what are they going to do? Well, about 20 years after John Wycliffe died, they had a hearing, and they declared him a heretic. 20 years after he died, they declared him a heretic. And they said, well, we're going to burn him at the stake. And everybody's like, he's already dead. Won't stop us. They dug up John Wycliffe's body and burned him at the stake just to make a point. And they're like, golly, man, like they were so mad at this guy. And so fast forward a little bit past that, and then something big happens. This is essentially the same as the Internet being invented because in a 1440, 1450 area, uh, they invent the printing press. Before the printing press, every copy of the Bible that ever existed was because a group of people were paid to handwrite 66 books of the Bible and make copies of it. A church would be formed in groves, and the church would raise all kind of money. Think of like our building funds and stuff. They would raise all the money that they could, and then they would go buy 10 copies of the Bible, and it would take like 15 years for them to handwrite the copies. And then Johann Gutenberg invents the printing press, and it's like a machine where he goes, ka-chink, print, ka-chink, print. He's got the Xerox machine, and he starts printing the Bible as his first book ever, and this sucker is getting sent out, and people are just hungry for it. They've never had the Bible. It was never cheap enough to own in your home, and most churches would only, like, you you were just like, it's been 10 years. We've got five more years, and we'll get our Bible. It's going to be okay. And, And they just wanted copies of the Bible. 
But Gutenberg, he invents the printing press, and it starts going out in mass. 1535, uh, a guy by the name of William Tyndale, he decides he's going to take the original languages of the Bible, the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic, and he's going to translate them into English. And he starts doing that, and people start listening. They start paying attention. They start digesting it. And this conversation starts to come up because you and I, the average Joes of the world, start reading the Bible for the very first time. Well, those same people who were mad at the other guy, Wycliffe, are now mad at Tyndale. And so they have a trial before his stroke, before he dies. So they catch him while he's alive, and they say, hey, uh, what are we going to do with this guy? Let's sentence him to death. So they sentenced to burn him at the stake, except he didn't die by being burned at the stake because somebody was so mad in the crowd, they went up on the stage and strangled him for writing the Bible in English. And so he died by strangulation, and then they burned him. Uh, very angry people at the time. Could you imagine? Like, we take, we take the Bible for granted. I've got four of these in storage right now. I don't even know where they are because all my stuff's in storage. And these guys are dying trying to get you and I a copy of the Bible that we can read, that makes sense to us, that we can understand. Last one I'll give for data for the nerds is 1611, the King James Version of the Bible is written. It was a group of scholars. Uh, how many was it? It was 47 language scholars. They wanted to bring uh, the entire Bible into English in one format that everybody could understand. And what they tried to do, this was an interesting balancing act that they tried to do, is that they tried to balance the translating accurately to keeping words that people can remember and understand. So, Raise your hand if you grew up reading King James Bible and you did your memorization, your VBSs. That's like you, you would prefer hearing that old English way of putting things, right? And they're trying to do that balancing act, except they're the new Bible at the time. They're trying to do that with the Latin Vulgate and other things. They, they would know that people were reading Tyndale's Bible, but Tyndale didn't translate this one portion right. So they're trying to find this balancing act. How do I translate this right and find words that make sense to the people that are reading it? And that brings us to how translations come to be. The translations that you have in your hand are supposed to be a balancing act. A good translation will be a balancing act between getting the original words correct, but writing it down in a way that you and I speak and understand and can memorize, the, the, the way that the world works. So let's talk about the differences between the different Bible translations. Raise your hand if you prefer King James. Okay, we got a few of you. I saw it. Same hands. Good, good, good. Raise your hand if you prefer a New American Standard Bible. That's the Bible that Pat usually teaches out of. Okay. Raise your hand if you prefer the ESV, English Standard Version. That's the Bible I usually teach out of. That's my, my Bible. I can do a couple more. Uh, New Living Translation. Anybody? I like that. And so everybody in here, every, every translation I just gave, and I could give some more, every translation I just gave, someone raised their hand. I, that's my preferred one. Why do we have so many different translations in English? Well, uh, first thing we need to say is what they're trying to do. So the next slide, we'll talk about that, is um, there, there are three uh, techniques, three philosophies. There's a word-for-word -word translation, there's a thought-for-thought -thought translation, and there are paraphrases of the Bible. A word-for-word -word translation is trying to take this Greek word and make an English word that fits that Greek word, and every time this Greek word shows up, use that English word in the exact same order as you find it in the Greek. A thought for thought says, listen, I'm not going to do each word because you sound like a robot when you do that. You sound, you sound like Yoda trying to read this thing all the way through. And so I'm going to take, instead of just taking each word, I'm going to take each sentence 
and I'm going to translate each sentence into a new English sentence, and that's going to be the Bible. And then the paraphrases are like, listen, that's a lot of work. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this three, four chapters. We're going to take this whole paragraph. I'm going to translate this whole paragraph into a different word. Okay, And so um, just a helpful uh, little card is in the seat in front of you or nearby. Uh, it's this. It's a little bookmark. Take it with you. Which Bible is right for me? If you're shopping for a Bible, it might be good for you to know the differences between each of the Bibles. If you grab any Bible off of the shelf in the bookstore, if you go to the very front section past the table of contents, there is a preface on every Bible that's on the bookshelf. And in the preface, they will tell you what I'm about to tell you. They will be honest with you and say, I am a word-for-word translation, or I am a thought-for-thought translation. And so if you, after I explain this, if you decide, hey, I really want to get more on that side of the spectrum, then when you go to your bookstore, your Bible bookstore, just read the preface of a couple of them and see which one fits. A word-for-word translation, like I said, is trying to get each word as close as it can to English. And then a paraphrase is about as far away from that as you can get. On the right side of this card are a list of translations of the Bible in approximately the spectrum that they're going to fall. Your word-for-words are up at the top, and your paraphrases are down at the bottom, and the middle ones are your thought-for-thoughts. Okay? In here, in Carpenter's Way... Um, you're probably going to be okay with any of the ones on that right column as far as just studying and and paying attention to. Um, I will tell you that Pat primarily teaches out of the New American Standard Bible. It is a very strong word-for-word translation. If if you're reading one of the verses that Pat is reading, and it's like, that wording seems strange. It's probably because it was reflecting the original Greek or the original Hebrew a little bit closer. Um, A classic thought-for-thought is the NIV, the New International version, um, and that takes uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, sentences and longer sections of verses and tries to translate that. Um, in the early 2000s, the English Standard Version comes up, and if you read their preface, they say we are a dynamic equivalence translation of the Bible, and what they've tried to do is find the happy middle ground between word for word and thought for thought and say, okay, in as much as we can, we're going to be word for word, but if it sounds funky in English, we're going, to, we're going to move a word around every now and then just so that we can all understand what we're writing. Um, down at the bottom, uh, you see New Living Translation. New Living Translation is strictly a paraphrase. It is not a translation from the original languages, but there are a lot of really, really good tools in it. Um, a lot of really good study uh, Bibles are in the New Living Translation. And, um, and you can find each verse. And so, for instance, if you look up John 3.16, there is a John 3.16 in the New Living Translation. If you go one step below that, it's called the message. The message, if you look up John 3.16 and you pull it up, it will say something like John 3.15 through 18. And it's like a paragraph of text, for example. And it'll show you what that looks like. Let's look at a few examples before I run out of time. This is John 3.16. Oh, there you go. You have it up there. Let's look at John 3.16 in the NASB, please. This is a word-for-word translation. You'll recognize this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a pretty good word-for-word translation. We'll look at the NIV. This is, remember, a classic thought-for-thought. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Is it different? Yes. Is it close? It's very close. They were attempting to kind of clean up the, the hard edges of different language barriers and get it out. The message is a paraphrase, and this is how it's written in the message. 
This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. Is it close? No, not, not very close. But if you're reading that, do you get the same general message? Uh, forgive the pun. Uh, the same general meaning as you would from a word for word? You do. Um, what I would tell you, uh, just as a recommendation, is if you, um, if you find yourself like you're, you're a blog reader, you like reading huge chunks of text at a time, you're just a reader, reader. The Message Bible is good for that. The Message Bible is, for, is good for, it's on your nightstand, and you want to open it up, and you just want, I just want to know the basic story points of, of what's going on right there. Go ahead and read it. But when it comes time to studying it, I'm going to tell you, you need to step backwards up that scale a little bit and go closer to the thought for thoughts. Maybe, maybe find one that's a little bit closer. Let's look at um, uh, the, the third uh, verse, Barbara. Please. There you go. Philippians 4.13. Everybody knows this one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's probably on someone's mug right now. That's the word for word. Let's look at the next one, the thought for thought. NIV says, I can do this through him who gives me strength. You see, it's close, but it's certainly a different wording. It's a little bit easier uh, on the, the modern tongue. And then the message writes it this way. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Not quite the same wording, but roughly the same meaning. So you see the, the logic right here. And each one of these translations exists because of this. Everybody is on a different spectrum. Some of you speak English as a second language. Some of you have 15th grade reading level. Some of you are on a fourth grade reading level. We're all over the place. And they have these different translations so that the, the Bible is accessible. You can read it yourself. Okay? All right. Um, uh, I'm going to skip. Uh, I have a, a set of slides. If you want to talk to me later about, like, well, Jesse, let me ask you this. Like, can you even trust that the New Testament? And I, I was going to talk to you a little bit about, the, like, how many copies of the New Testament we have. But I, I, I'm going to skip to the next one. Uh, Barbara, bring it to uh, can you help me study the Bible? Because that's really what we're going to be about today. Our goal in bringing this message up, and, and we knew it was going to be academic. We know that this is basically a college class tonight or today. Our goal in bringing this up is so that whenever you decide, I'm ready to fall in love with the Word of God, you have something there in front of you, and it's accessible. You can get to it. It makes sense to you. So what are some things you can do to help you study the Bible? Well, the first one would be, could be to buy a study Bible. That's really uh, a good tool. It's a physical Bible you can buy at the store. Um, this is not a study Bible. If I open this up, all of the words are just the Bible. Um, but if I grab a study Bible, um, it's basically having like three libraries in one. This is a, a student study Bible. If you're a teenager and you don't have a Bible, this is yours before you leave today. If you come to youth group, I would give it to you then too. Um, this is the, the ESV. It's the Bible that I teach out of on Wednesdays. And so if you see the study Bible at the top, are the Bible verses. This is where, like, you know, you're just reading the Bible. This is the Bible. But if you're, like, studying about yourself and you're like, man, I wish there was a map or I wish someone would answer a question, it's probably answered in the bottom section of the same page. If you turn to the back of study Bibles or these helpful maps that show you what's going on, there's some timelines in there. A study Bible is an excellent way to just, like, take your faith, take your knowledge of the Bible and put some rocket fuel on it and take off with it, okay? Study Bibles are super, super helpful. 
Um, and there's a ton of study Bibles. If you're uh, a hunter, you can get a waterproof study Bible that you could like take in the deer stand with you and flip through and pray for a deer to come like running in front of you. But, and, and it won't fade. It won't, it won't tear up. And it's a study Bible just for you. If you are um, super artsy uh, and you're crafty, there are study Bibles that every third page takes just one famous verse and makes this beautiful artistic version of that. And you can just like soak in the beauty of that. If you're a man, there are men's study Bibles. If you're a woman, there's woman, women's, women's study Bibles that are just kind of specific topics geared towards that. Sorry, I was speaking another language at the beginning, so the words aren't coming out right. Um, this is a, uh, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes study Bible. I'm not read through it. I imagine it's like, you know, loving Jesus is like tackling the quarterback or something like that. I don't know. Um, but but it, the, the idea is that there's a study Bible for every kind of mode that you find yourself in. And every translation on the right side of that card has some great study Bible versions out there. If you just Google the translation you're looking at in the word study Bible, you can find some great, great options. Uh, the second thing I want to point you to are some online tools. We'll look at those quickly. Uh, Bible Gateway is an online tool I use a lot. If you just type in Bible Gateway, um, what is great about that is uh, it's every translation out there, just like the app on your phone probably has. But you can click a button and you can put them side by side. And so even as I prepared for this, I wanted to see the NIV versus the NASB. I clicked the button and saw John 3.16 side by side, and you can read that. It's a very helpful uh, website. If you find yourself, oh, and also... Uh, on this website and the next one are some great commentaries that uh, 10 years ago, they're $50 a piece, and there's probably a 1,000 of them on there. Now they're all free, which is weird. Like all the information that all the pastors were breaking the bank on 10 years ago, it's all on here now, okay? So Bible Gateway is a great tool. Another one is Blue Letter Bible. So another website, we'll put that up. Blue Letter Bible is a little bit more scholarly. Um, if you're super interested in original languages and, and how they are... Uh, uh, going, you know, how, how they work, uh, that, that is a, a great option. On your phone, if you have a phone or a tablet, uh, I would recommend that you download the YouVersion Bible app. This is a great Bible app. It's put out for free by Life Church in, up in Oklahoma. It has a ton of translations. It has also those commentaries. It also has um, some Bible reading plans. And so if you're like me, you just like Sometimes you're just, I want something to tell me what to read. Like I just like, I, I can read what I want, but sometimes I want you to tell me what to read. You click one of those Bible reading plans and every day a new little passage is there and you can work with it with your friends or some social networking aspects. So you and three of your buddies can like all read the same plan together and then make fun of the one who didn't read it uh, that day. And that's, that's always a lot of fun. Jesus loves that. Um, the last thing I want to bring up as far as resources goes is this. Uh, on uh, YouTube, there's a lot of places to go. Also, podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. You can type in just about any church you want, and there's going to be a podcast where you can listen to their messages and their pastor teaching that. The greatest preachers in the world are available just at the click of a button, and it's absolutely free. One of them that a lot of people don't know about is this guy. Uh, he does this YouTube. He also is, There's a podcast version of it called the 10-Minute Bible Hour, and I love it because he's super smart, and it's really short. And so for 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that, he'll explain some things that are going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of funny, too, so uh, it really works out. But I would recommend if you're, if you're really just trying to dive into it for the first time, 10-minute Bible hour is a great place to be. The last thing I want to look at is this. And this is the point of all of it. And all of this is just college course, and you're super academic now, unless this part sinks in. in 2 Timothy 3. Paul is giving instruction to a pastor, and he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about what we've been talking about. 
And he says this about the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. This, this book, when we read it, it profits you. It benefits you because you're being taught and you're learning the ways of God. It's profitable for reproof. It will, it will, it will correct you in some wrong ways of thinking from time to time. If you've, ever, if you've ever heard a sermon or you're reading the Bible, you're like, man, that, that hit me right in the stomach. Yeah, that's what he's talking about right here. The Bible can do that. It's, it's good for correction. It's good for training in righteousness. When we want to know what God wants of us, the Bible, scriptures, is where we're going to find the answer for that. 317, please. That the man of God, you and I, the man and woman of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. The world is full of people who will tell you verbally that God wants A, B, and C from you, and they're lying, or they made it up, or they're just incorrect. But when we find it rooted in the word of God, it has some weight, and we, we, we know that we can trust it. We can lean on that a little bit more. There were a ton of questions I didn't answer, but for the sake of time, we're going to close with that. Our hope uh, at Carpenter's Way is that we as a body will develop a stronger, more passionate love for the Word of God. I want to remind you of uh, Pat's challenge to continue reading 1 John. If you haven't begun that already, go ahead and read that a couple of times this week because he's going to begin working through 1 John next week when he gets back. Um, and maybe, maybe you you know, check his references because you have a really sweet study Bible now, and you're like, well, actually, Pat, the, the Greek says, <laughs> and then, like, you really impress him with what you know. Pray with me. Uh, I hope that you're blessed, and I hope, I hope that we fall in love with the Word of God together. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning, God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you, Lord, that you um, have saw fit to protect uh, these teachings and, Lord, that, that for so many centuries now, people have trusted on them to learn who you are, and their lives were transformed by you as a result. I pray for us at Carpenter's Way that we would be a group of people that love your word and fall in love with you and know more about who you are because our study together. Lord, we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.